Welcome to the official podcast of North Park Church. This is week three of our current message series titled Impact, It Doesn't Just Happen. We pray that today's message encourages you in your walk with the Lord and helps you in your journey to become a lifelong follower of Jesus. Part of all the Jewish festivals, anytime I wanted to, I could go where I want to go and do what I want to do. And he finally gets to Jesus. They rip the roof off. He gets lowered down. And Jesus says the wrong thing. I'll never forget when I was in youth, our youth pastor took us to a Benny Hinn crusade. And I don't know if you remember uh, Benny Hinn. Benny Hinn was very popular for, and I know that kind of divides the room. Some of you love Benny Hinn, some of you don't love Benny Hinn. But anyways, Benny Hinn would pray for people, and they would be healed, and it would be on television. And we got there a little late, and I thought, man, I wish I could have got there early. I wanted to get down front. I want, I want Benny Hinn to pray for me. Well, we got there late, and, and one youth group got there early, and they got to the front, and, and we were all kind of wanting to be up there. And he looked at these guys, and he said, I want to pray for you, but God's spoken to me that you two will never be married, and you will be missionaries for the rest of your life. And I was just like, I'm going to go sit back here. And, you know, I, I didn't want that. And this guy is looking up at Jesus going, no, that's not what I need, Jesus. I need to be able to walk. And here's what Jesus knew, and here's what we know. And this is not a lack of compassion on the part of Jesus. Jesus was actually being very compassionate by saying your sins are forgiven. Because we're going to see in a moment, it puts Jesus at great risk for his own life. But also he says to this man, your sins are forgiven because Jesus knows that two months after being healed, this man will be miserable about something else again. That even though this man can now walk, there will be something in his heart that says, yeah, I can walk, but I don't have a wife. Or I could walk, but I don't have this job. I can walk, but man, I wish that I was them. And the reality is, there's always another if-then after we get to the first one. I shared this a few weeks ago when Pastor Anthony and I were speaking. There was this really unique article in the New York Times many years ago about a lady who was a waitress at a restaurant where many former celebrities had worked before they were celebrities. And she said almost the week after they had gotten everything they dreamed of, they were more miserable than before it came true. And she wasn't a believer, but she said, I am convinced the most cruel thing God can do is give you everything you've ever asked for and then watch you be miserable. Because the reason the if-then lie is so powerful is because for most of us, it doesn't happen. And so that lie is still there. And this guy's thinking, Jesus, you can heal me. And Jesus looks at him with all the compassion in the world and says, your sins are forgiven. And here's what I want you to see today. If you feel like you're in the crowd, and I know many times I'm in the crowd, Chuck Swindoll says this, the deepest needs of our lives are not physical. They're spiritual and invisible. Now, I know you disagree with me, and I want to disagree with me, but when I read it over and over and over and over again, I cannot. The deepest needs in your life are not physical, and I am not belittling what you are facing currently. The greatest needs in your life are not physical. They're actually spiritual and they're invisible. And we see this when we finally get the thing and we're still miserable. And there's still an ache and there's still this suffering and there's a new problem to face. Verse 6, 
Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Here's the risk factor for Jesus. If Jesus would have healed this man, he would have been in less trouble. But because he risked it for this guy and said, your sins are forgiven, in the eyes of the religious leaders, he committed blasphemy. And the penalty for blasphemy, according to Leviticus 24, verse 16, is death. And the reason they believe this is only God can forgive sin because every sin is against God. So it's like if, if you got out and rammed your car into Kevin's truck and just smashed the front end of it, and you both get out, and I walk up and go, hey, man, I forgive you. Forgive you for smashing Kevin's truck. How weird and bizarre would that be? Why? Because it's not Kevin's, it's not my truck. It's Kevin's truck. The one who needs to ask forgiveness, they need to ask forgiveness of Kevin. The wrong has been done against him. Anytime a wrong is done or committed, someone must pay the price, either the person forgiving or the person that it's been done against. And all sin, every sin we've ever committed is a sin against God. And so Jesus is making the statement here, I am God in flesh. And he says, you are forgiven. The room goes absolutely silent. Verse 8, and immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? So they're questioning. They're just thinking this stuff. And Jesus calls them out. He says, which is easier to say to you, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now the scripture tells us in verse 6 that these were scribes. So sometimes when you're reading your Bible in the New Testament, you'll see scribes, You'll see Pharisees, you'll see Sadducees, and they had different roles. Pharisees are very popular, but Pharisees did not actually have as much power as the Sadducees and scribes. Pharisees would pray hundreds of times a day. Pharisees were kind of out more amongst the people, but scribes and Sadducees and some Pharisees, but not a lot, were a part of the Sanhedrin, which would have been like the Jewish Supreme Court, and they made laws. And the Sadducees depended on the scribes, to be experts in the law. And when we think of that, we think of like a Bible teacher. But they were actually a lot more like a lawyer. They knew the law. Okay? I got a ticket speeding, going just crazy, 40 miles an hour in a 25 by Target and Home Depot. <laughs> Reckless driving is what it says on there. And I paid a lawyer who took care of the whole thing, and said, hey, man, I got it bumped down, and it was improper use of equipment. I'm like, how does, I don't, I don't want to ask any more questions. I'm not sure how that works. But I went from being a reckless driver to somebody who's like, I don't understand how this works. I don't know how that happened. Why? Because he's an expert in the law. And these, these, these scribes would meticulously study the scripture. And here's what the thing was. There was the written law, and there was the oral law. The written law were the scriptures that they had written down. So they talk about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Most Jewish boys by age 13 would have those memorized. But you need to understand how to apply those laws in current day situations. And so the scribes would study and know the hidden context. They would study the deeper truths. And then they would tell 
the Sanhedrin how to make legal decisions based on that interpretation. And that was called the oral law, and that was on the same level as Scripture. So what a scribe said was on the same level as God's written word. So they had a lot of power and a lot of influence. And the Sadducees liked their influence, and so did the scribes, and so they became very close to the Roman Empire. And there was this system, and the scribes and the Sadducees did not want that system to be destroyed. So they needed Jesus to calm down. Because if Rome thought Jesus was king, or thought he was king, they would shut down the whole temple. The Jews would lose the temple. More importantly, these guys would lose their positions of power and wealth. And so they didn't like it. So there wasn't just the crowd that day. There was the critic, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. They were always present when Jesus was doing things. They, had, they would always send out spies. And in this particular case, they sent some scribes to watch what Jesus was doing at this house to make sure he was following the law. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they're like, nope, he's not God. That's blasphemy. He needs to die. And you and I don't do that. We could see where we fit in the crowd, but the critic? I mean, most of us don't go home and, and study the first five books of the Bible and try to figure out which ones laws people are breaking and how do we apply that today. That's probably not our thing. And so you, you're probably saying, you know what, I wasn't in the crowd, but I'm definitely not a critic. But here's, here's, here's how a critic starts. The earliest signs of a critical spirit are hidden and unspoken. It begins deep down in the hidden recesses of your heart, and it grows unnoticed. Unless it's treated like a disease and aggressively hunted down and eradicated, a critical spirit becomes deadly. These unseen, unspoken, hidden parts of your heart have powerful influence on how you experience life and how you impact other people. And here's how they start. You decide to stop trusting, hoping, and believing. You decide to stop hoping, trusting, and believing. And usually it's because you apply one particular situation to all situations. And if we're talking about church, church hurts real. And for some of us in this room, it was hard for you to come here today because of church hurting. So I just want to say thank you for being here. But it's an act of trust for you to be here. But here's what can happen. You need a safe place to heal. But you also need to be careful not to take one particular situation at one particular church with one particular leader and apply it to all churches, all people, all groups. Never join a life group, never serve, never truly be a part because you're still waiting to see. And let's be honest, there's plenty of reasons. And I'll say this, without the healing power and the Holy Spirit, it would be impossible for you to heal because if you've trust someone to preach to, to preach to you, to teach you, to lead you, and they've misused funds, or they've had an affair, or they talked about you behind your back. You have every reason to walk out the door of any church and never come back. But if the gospel is true, and I believe that it is, that God wants you to not be in the crowd, not be a critic, and not allow one particular thing. And here's, here's what I love. C.S. Lewis says that hell, okay, hell begins with a grumbling mood. 
always complaining, always blaming others. Each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. C.S. Lewis had written a book called The Great Divorce, and it's about a group of people that go on a field trip from hell to heaven. Now, here's the thing. They're in hell, and they don't even really realize they're in hell. And that kind of blows our mind. And actually, I hope that in 2023, we're going to do a series on heaven and on hell. Because there's a lot of stuff. Some of it we've learned from the Bible. Some of it we've learned from other stuff that's not biblical. But, but when we look at this imagery of hell, we always think fire and we always think torment. And in many ways, there's, there's some, some actual things there. But then sometimes there's some symbolism trying to describe a pain that which we don't really understand. And a part of that pain is hell is this separation of God. And C.S. Lewis believed it was a choice that we actually made. That instead of saying to God, thy will be done, be Lord of my life, we say, my will be done. And if you're an extremely greedy person for 70 years, you're pretty greedy. But if you're an extremely greedy person for a million years and then 10 million years and then through eternity, you're miserable in your own greed, but you don't actually long for heaven. And so these people in this book are taken on a field trip to heaven and it's miserable. They hate it. They hate the things of heaven because if you're a racist, you hate heaven. Because there's people of every culture and every tongue and they're celebrating. They're eating. If you're not generous, you hate heaven because people are sharing and loving and blessing one another. If you hate hospitality, heaven will be miserable for you because it's all about loving and serving one another. And so they go and they absolutely hate it. And the, the kind of the theme in the entire book is wherever the people go, they're grumbling and complaining. And so I'm just... This morning, I'm not telling you you're going to hell. I'm just saying this. When you come into church, are you always finding everything that's wrong? Is it always, like, I'm not saying, like, you have legitimate concerns. I'm saying, like, everything. Everything is wrong. Every sermon's wrong. Every song is wrong. The seating's wrong. Everything's wrong all the time. And every pastor you hear, whether on TV or, or on a podcast, everybody's wrong, 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 wrong. And you think you're being super spiritual. And you say, well, I've just got the gift of discernment. You're miserable. You're miserable. Because you leaned in. And you trusted, and you are a part, and somebody hurt you, and that's real. That has become your identity. You're a critic, or you're in the crowd. And both of them require you to step out. Now, in the story, it goes on that Jesus says, you know what, to show that I have the authority to forgive sin, I'm going to go ahead and heal him. And he tells the man, rise up, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man does. And, and, they, and, and in this story, some people are amazed, and some people are angry. The crowd is amazed. Again, Jesus did a great thing, but they didn't step forward. The critics, they're angry. Jesus, you healed him, but you did it wrong. Both were in the room with Jesus without experiencing Jesus. And here's what breaks my heart about me, and this might be true about you, is I can attend a church. I can work at a church. And I can sit right there, and beautiful songs can be sung to Jesus. And a message can be preached right at my heart. And I experience nothing. Because either the critic in me is complaining, or the crowd in me says, Jesus, just not today. 
And if you stay in the crowd long enough, you don't ever step forward. And if you stay a critic long enough, you'll never find a church you enjoy. That becomes your identity. Hard thing is, is it takes a lot to step out of the crowd, to stop being a critic. Very quickly, verses 13 through 17 describe the conversion of a tax collector. It says, he went out again beside the sea. There's a crowd again. They were coming to him. He was teaching them. And he passed them, and he saw Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, here's what you need to know. This tax collector would have been at a stand there, and, and, and Capernaum was a border town. So you'd have to stop there with all of your goods. Now, all of your land tax, your property tax, your income tax all went to Rome. But the tax that stayed with the Jewish people was on transported goods that were contracted out to local collectors. So Rome would immediately get land and immediately get that, and and they had tax set up for the Jewish temple. But there was a part of the tax on transported goods. And so the job of the tax collectors, many times that were Jews that were paid by the Roman government, is because they knew the customs of the Jews. They knew the tricks the Jews might play to try to avoid. But here's the thing. The the customs, the, the, the tax collector, Levi, we believe to be Matthew, who becomes a disciple of Jesus, is at a place and his job is to search all of your goods and then tax them. It's also believed that, that Matthew and his area where he was at was very close to where fishermen would get their fish. And his job was to be at his booth when they stopped fishing. And many times they would fish all night. So you fished all night and you're exhausted and you're tired. And when you get off the boat, he's literally there with his feet in the sand saying, one for Rome, one for you, two for me. He could skim off the top as much as he wanted. One for Rome, two for me. And maybe you caught a hundred fish and you leave with five or ten. And you hated them. Okay? The, we know historically, and I love this, they were considered like a mixture of the IRS and TSA. Could you imagine if you mix those two together? Seriously, when you fly, you get mad at TSA. The rest of the time, you're mad at IRS. Imagine if they combined together and formed a super tax collector TSA, and that's who Matthew was. And his particular area was to tax fishermen a lot. And Jesus says, hey, do you want to come follow me? Tax collectors could not testify in court because they could not be trusted. They were such liars. They couldn't be a part of the Jewish festivals. In fact, we're told that tax collecting was on the same level as sinners. In fact, they say about Jesus, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You want to know who sinners were back in first centuries to the Jews? Sinners were gamblers. Money lenders, this one's going to convict you guys, people who raced doves for sport. Let's have an altar call right now. Just bow your heads, close your eyes. If you've been raising doves, I want you to come down here right now. That was a big problem. They would race doves and gamble on them. And the worst of the worst were people that traded on the Sabbath, thieves, and tax collectors. And they asked this question, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. Matthew would have taxed Simon Peter for years. 
And Jesus in one word says, you're forgiven, follow me, you're with us now. If you're Simon Peter, you're in the boat, sleeping at a campfire, eating every meal next to a guy who has robbed you for years. And Jesus says, I love him just like I love you. That's hard. That's difficult. And in one statement, something is revealed about these people. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said, Those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So again, in this story, there's the crowd and there's the critics. The first story, there was crowds, there was critics. The man that was healed, his friends went out of the way to get him in the presence of Jesus. He had to come out from the crowd. In this particular story, there's a tax collector who has to come out from the crowd. And here's what we know. Every other disciple could return to their trade when they weren't traveling with Jesus. Except for one. Because when you were a tax collector in Rome, you would bid and pay for that route. And it was almost impossible to get a route. Everybody wanted that job because you would be wealthy. And for him to walk away at that moment, he lost his route. He lost his income forever. You don't learn a new trade in first century Rome at that age. Most likely, he had to depend on the other disciples, the ones he'd robbed for years, to make it. He went from being the most wealthy disciple to the poorest. He risked a lot. I personally think he risked more than any of them because he made Rome mad as well. Nobody cares if a fisherman quits. If a tax collector quits, Rome pays attention. But something about the words of Jesus broke his heart. And here's where it comes down to. The critics said he welcomes sinners and eats with them. The Christian says he welcomes sinners and eats with me. Not them, me. For some of you in this room, the scandal of grace is that they are included, that group. These people are included. These people are loved by Jesus like I am. Those people who do those things, they're disgusting. They're not moral. They're not good like me. They don't look like me. They don't vote like me. They don't talk like me. These people. Jesus says yes. And for some, that's the scandal of grace. But I think there's another category. The scandal of grace is that I am included. Because I get to realize that I am the most broken, sinful person that I know. Because I know now that my greatest needs are not physical. That my greatest needs cannot be fixed by the Powerball or a large inheritance or a successful ministry or a great marriage. That my greatest need is for a Savior and for a Lord to operate on my heart for the rest of my life. To mend all the broken pieces made by sin. To lovingly point out the pride and the greed and the lust and the anger. And as he walks me along this journey, he is constantly transforming me into his image. So the question for you today before we pray, and the band is going to lead us in one last worship song. And I just want to mention that every Sunday, there's someone there and there's someone there that would love to pray for you. 
In fact, we always want to give you an opportunity to make Jesus the Savior of your life, to believe and confess that he died for you. But today, every one of you have to make a decision whether you come up front or not. Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is he the boss of your life? Are you in the crowd or are you a critic? And because it feels like I'm performing heart surgery on stage, I would say in the last month I've been more of a critic than the crowd. Now I fall into the crowd a lot, but the critic to me is the scariest place to be. Because I think that I've got it all together. And I'm missing things. And I don't feel this love for my Savior. I don't have this anticipation of I get to gather and I get to lift my hands and I get to sing these songs and I get to serve these people. And that critic in me causes me to miss out on his presence. So I want to challenge you today. When we worship, I want you to worship like you haven't worshiped in years. I want you to lift your hands if you want to. I want you to talk to him. I want you to connect with him like you did when you first realized that he knows everything you've done and he loves you more than anyone else. And if you're in the crowd today, step out of the crowd. He loves you. He died for you. You know a lot about him, but you don't know him. He doesn't have final say in your life know it. Please make him Lord of your life today. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I repent to you that for the last two weeks, I have been the critic. I've thought that I know what I need to know and I'm doing what I need to do, but I have not longed for your presence. I have not been seeking your face I have become comfortable with your grace. And I believe the, the kind of the mantra of my heart has been, he welcomes sinners and eats with them, but he welcomes sinners and eats with me. I am broken. I'm being transformed into your image, but God, I have forgotten that. I need your grace. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, those in the crowd and those that are critics, and I pray that you would reveal to them where they are in their heart and that they would step out of the crowd, they would lift their hands to heaven, and they would declare like never before with an enthusiasm and with a passion and with a joy, with an anointing like never before, Jesus, be Lord of my life. Lord of my marriage, Lord of my finances, Lord of my heart, Lord of my eyes, Lord of what I see, Lord of what I listen to, Lord of what I run after. Everyone in this room, you're chasing something to fulfill the greatest longing of your heart. And if you get it and it's not Jesus, you will be more miserable than you are right now. Someone in this room is chasing something, believing someone outside of your marriage is going to fulfill something broken. And this is your day. Stop. Stop believing that a relationship outside of your marriage will fulfill the desires of your heart that is not true, that is a lie from the enemy. Work on your marriage. Love and serve your spouse. But get close to your heavenly father. And he will begin to heal and restore. In Jesus' name, let's worship together.